please do me a favor and just rate the show, whatever app it is that you're using, Apple Music, Spotify, I don't know, the 11 other platforms I have this on, if you have a chance, um, leave a review too, that helps me out so much, and this call is really informative, it's about a guy who lived in North Korea for two years, for those who don't know, North Korea has a very strict regime, and there are barely any outsiders let into the country, um, and this guy had an exclusive look at that, so yeah, go ahead and enjoy. Yo, Jack Plex, answer the fucking phone, dude. right yeah um two and a half uh, not quite three years especially just understanding what's going on in north korea that's i could definitely tell right off the bat that there's probably a lot to take away from that and uh, from your experiences there i guess the first thing that i'm kind of wondering is how did you manage to get into north korea for that period of time in the first place my relative uh i can say he was my grandfather when i was 15 uh he was appointed to go work for the embassy of our country in North Korea for about uh, four years or so. And I didn't really have a choice in the matter, you know, seeing as I was a teenager. It's a decision that was made between him and my parents. And uh, yeah, so off I went to join him there. Supposed to be there for longer, you know, for the full four-year term that he had, but um, you know, combination of me being mentally affected and physically affected later on, and then also them wanting to you know, make sure I actually went to the proper uh, university and all that, uh, cut the time short. But um, we're uh, we're from a country that's sort of neutral, maybe not, we're not considered an enemy by them. But our country's official stance is that we're, you know, we don't consider them to be an enemy or anything like that. So... Or what age were you when you first stepped foot into North Korea? Uh, 15. So I was there from 15 to 17. So you're there from 15 to 17. So did you really realize the gravity and the weight of being able to step foot into North Korea at the time? Well, yeah. Uh, so previously, I had lived uh, in the U.S. and in Japan. So it wasn't like I was going from my home country straight to North Korea. Uh, you know, Japan and uh, America are, you know, two, two of the countries that, uh, you know, North Korea and uh, North Korea's government doesn't like, and you know, it's vice versa. You know, they consider North Korea uh, uh, as a rogue state, right? So I kind of had a feeling it was going to be pretty rough, um, and you know, um, my family had also told me, yeah, like you know, they're a communist country. You know, our country used to be communist back in the day, and you know, I used to hear all the horror stories from back in those days. You know, <laughs> right? So. I fully expected it to be bad, but, um, you know, I, obviously I didn't have a choice in the matter, so. So your headspace going into this is that, you know, you were you were young, you were fully, I mean, it seems as though you were more or less, you had a very good picture of what, you know, you were stepping into. Were you scared, nervous? Well, there was a, there was a little bit of, uh, you know, both, but also a little bit of excitement too, in a way, because not something that people can you know, experience all the time, right? Pretty rare. Experience. So there was a bit of excitement too, and um, there was also a little bit of a uh, you know happiness just that being able to you know see my grandparents again, right? Honestly, uh, uh, you know the the feeling of being scared or being nervous about going there, I kind of tried to bury it because you know I like I said I didn't have a choice. It's like so I just basically kind of tried to take my mind off of those feelings. You know, oftentimes when you enter a new area, of course, you know of uh, culture shock. So, you know, once you kind of step into North Korea, uh, maybe you land, you're, you're leaving the airport, taking a look around, um, you know, what's, what, what are some things that are starting to stick out to you immediately? Oh, uh, even before uh, leaving the airport, as soon as we left the airplane, there's so much uh, like grandiose uh, propaganda everywhere, you know? Giant big bold lettering. Uh, of course, I didn't understand Korean at the time. Hell, it was uh, uh, propaganda, you know, just because 
kind of what I was expecting. And then uh, there's like pictures of the leaders. People dressed like, you know, how Soviet people used to dress back in the day, right? Like almost looking kind of mili uh, militaristic in a way. And then, you know, we started the, the driving to Pyongyang. Yeah, it's more and more propaganda. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the closer we got to the city center, more and more there was so much propaganda and, uh, you know, those murals, uh, like the, the uh, I'm sure you can, you know, like <laughs> find uh, examples of them, you know, like Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il, because uh, Kim Jong-un wasn't around then, uh, still Kim Jong-il's uh, regime, because he hadn't died yet. But, you know, like, him like just kind of like holding his hand out up, above like fields of wheat with like the workers like kind of like worshiping him right stuff like that that you would uh you know kind of see in uh foreign media but like you know in person and, uh, there's like all these like flowers stuff like that to you know, offer up to the monuments right and then um there were also the uh the, the infamous traffic police you know instead of traffic lights they had the uh the, the, the police women in uniform you know directing traffic but, you know, when there's like literally almost no other cars, it's uh, pretty uh, interesting. This is like so much. You just described to me so much. Uh, that, that's a lot to take in in like a, any general area. Like all this, like you said, just propaganda all around you. And once you're taking a look at this in person, because it's one thing to see it through maybe a couple pictures here and there. And there's another thing to see it in person. Did you get like impending sense of like doom or did you get an impending sense of like, oh God, like I'm really here right now in, the, in that moment? So it didn't really set in until like, you know, later. So, you know, I had my grandfather and his staff picking us up from the airport and I felt at ease so to speak um, initially and then you know like you realize internet access is limited and the certain things you can and can't bring into the country and so on and so forth like more I was limited the harder it got because then I really started understanding what, what living under censorship and surveillance really meant right but that that took some time to set in it wasn't the initial on that very first day now can you describe to me a little bit about your living arrangement at that point in time? I lived at the embassy, in the, uh, the embassy compound, and all the embassies are, you know, in like a special area. There's a couple different areas. I mean, the, the Russians and the Chinese got their own little area, but like everyone else got like these two little districts in Pyongyang where all the embassies and international organization buildings were. Living in a regular old house just happens to be in the middle of Pyongyang. You know, you had already brought up that you realized that you were going to be living under censorship and constant surveillance, but it, it took a while to set in, if that makes sense. So, you know, I believe right now, you live in a different country, I believe. Oh, I live in the U.S. now. I've, I've lived in the U.S. my whole life, so I can't really particularly imagine that level of surveillance and censorship. What are some things that you can just think off the top of the bat of your head that you can just do in the U.S., no problem, that would get you in huge trouble in North Korea? Wouldn't get me in trouble, not necessarily, but um, the embassies all had these little guard booths at the gate, and they were manned by North Korean guards, North soldiers, right? And had little like you know hot, hotline style telephones, you know the, the kind that doesn't have like a dialer. And whenever we would leave the embassy premises or the gate, and whenever we would come back, they would always you know pick up the phone and report that we were leaving or that we were coming back in. Right? That was like the very first thing that I noticed because you know as soon as we got to the embassy, I saw the guard there and. I, I was like, oh, hey, look, it's a North Korean soldier who's with the guard. Okay, didn't expect that. And then, uh, you know, like you picked up the phone and then uh, one of the embassy staff, you know, they told me, oh, yeah, every time you come in and leave or you know, whatever, they'll always pick up the phone to report it. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, um, but yeah, like, you know, like here, like if I was leaving my apartment or like you know, anywhere, really, like you don't ever get that, right? And um, we assumed that there were always like, you know, people planted around the city and those uh, embassy compounds that uh, reported on our whereabouts, right? Can't say I've ever had that kind of experience anywhere else I lived. And then something that would get me into trouble, I could just drive around the city, you know, here where I live uh, for no reason for any, uh, to go anywhere, right? But back then, uh, you know, if we went somewhere we weren't supposed to go, there would you know, obviously be guards or like, like a car that would just like stop us and tell us to, you know, like get out of there, right? I mean, unless I'm like overtly like uh, trespassing somewhere, right? Like here in the U.S., I uh, don't think anyone would tell us to leave a certain area for no reason, right? Um, but that happened quite often because we would 
uh, go exploring around the city and end up in places we shouldn't be at. Walking around the city or taking a bike ride or going for a drive could get you in trouble if you didn't know where you were going or if you weren't sure if where you were going was uh, you know, somewhere that you were allowed to be at. That's a significant difference. And you, you had said that you were 15 to 17 during the time of your residency? Yeah. So, you know, towards the end, I learned how to drive. So I was sometimes driving around the city too. Were, were you going to school there at that point in time? Yes. So um, Pyongyang uh, has uh, something called the Pyongyang Foreigner School. And it was a school specifically meant for foreign children, you know, who were there under similar circumstances as myself. Or the exact same circumstances, I guess, for most of them. You know, when you were going to this location, did you ever have discussions with your peers about the general state of where you guys were living in North Korea? Yeah, I mean, uh, pretty much every single one of us hated it, you know? <laughs> like, slow internet, or like, internet internet with, like, you know, uh, censorship. You know how they talk about the Great Firewall of China, right? It's the same thing, we can't just access any website we want to, constantly have to use a VPN. But it was, the internet was slow to begin with, and then on top of that, using a VPN would make it even slower. And then, you know, just not going, being able to, like, you know, go down to the corner store to pick up a new game. Like, we would have to drive all the way to China for that, or, like, have someone bring it to us or whatever. So, you know, there was constant boredom, and, you know, we would basically trash talk <laughs> the, the whole regime just for having us be bored. Like, how dare they, right? <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, there was a lot of uh, underage drinking because there wasn't a whole lot else to do. You know, we were bored out of our minds with not much else to do, so we would, you know, yeah, drink a lot. And uh, the funny thing is that the, the diplomatic clubs, or uh, that's just like a fancy term that they used for places where we could go, basically, so for entertainment. They had like restaurants and like, you know, stuff in there. Like, they knew we were underage, but, you know, they would still serve us. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Did you ever get to talk to anybody outside of this educational institution, somebody that was um, not a part of like this this diplomat community, just a regular citizen? Um, not not so much. So my actual contact with uh, North Koreans was pretty much limited to uh, teachers at the school, my tutors, um, and uh, like restaurants and shop staff, or like people at the market. You know, like the people like manning the stalls, right? We knew better than to just like strike up a random conversation with a random North Korean. You know, that probably wouldn't be good for them. And on top of that, uh, a lot of they probably knew better than to just, you know, randomly talk to us too. However, every once in a while though, you know, maybe maybe people got to, you know, like really curious and just couldn't help themselves. But uh, there would be people who would come up to us and like ask us for the time, like if, you know, one of us was wearing a wristwatch or something. But that was, that, that's about it for like the general population. I guess there was a very, almost like a clear divide between the, this diplomat community and like the regular community of North Korea, if that makes sense. That's a very clear divide. I mean, we would obviously be able to, you know, go out into the city, but we wouldn't really, you know, have the chance to just interact with random people. How does that work that you don't want to, or that you can't talk to them? Like, if you were to talk to them, would they just kind of brush you off? First and foremost, you know, like, they, they obviously don't speak. English, right? We could approach them with our broken Korean, right? Yeah, like, there was a few times where we tried to just kind of like, you know, ask for directions, right? Like, we didn't need directions, but just to make it look like, you know, we we're just asking for directions, and they would just kind of like, like, wave us off, and kind of, and just like, keep walking, or no, no one would actually like, stop to talk to us. How would you describe the infrastructure and the general appearance of North Korean or North Korean these cities. Uh, Pyongyang, the capital city, is very different from the rest of the country. So I could start off with uh, North Korea and then you know just kind of do it in two parts, I guess. So Pyongyang looks a lot like any other country that had uh, the, the Soviet-style you know architecture. Of course, aside from the propaganda pieces, like the apartment hmm. building blocks look like you know stuff from my home country, where you know back in the day we used to be a part of you know like comp block, right? So. You know, it's actually pretty nostalgic in a way. Like the uh, apartment buildings looked very similar to what I was, uh, what I grew up around, right? And then uh, as for like other public infrastructure, like roads, uh, electricity, and heat, and all that, um, the roads were actually pretty nicely paved. There weren't like a whole lot of cars, you know, around. So I assume, you know, the roads didn't degrade that much just because the Una wasn't being used that much. Um, uh, electricity. Uh, when I first got there in uh, 2008, 
uh, there were so many blackouts. Like even at the diplomatic district, just a constant blackout. And then uh, in the middle of the night, like there wouldn't be any like you know street lights on or any like like you know lights on at like uh, the private homes, uh, you know, because of the blackouts. So like sometimes at night it's just like pitch black, like you know, like you're in the middle of a dark forest, except for the monuments, which. I guess they must have had separate generators for them or separate power lines because they were lit up 24-7, right? And then, uh, like, heat. From my understanding, the, the general public, they didn't have, like, you know, like, regular, like, heaters in their home. They had radiators in the, in the apartment block. But, you know, whether they were on or not, most likely they were off because it seemed like a lot of people were just burning coal, like, you know, uh, in little stoves and just had like the pipes sticking out the apartment uh, windows, right? So I'm, I'm assuming the heating uh, situation was pretty pretty bad and it would get actually really smoky in the winter just because of everyone constantly burning coal, you know, charcoal, so you like to keep themselves warm. And um, transportation is, I guess, another one. Most people didn't have cars, obviously, but, and people who did have access to cars, you know, it was Probably it was because of like a job they held, like you know, if they were like say a, like a transportation driver for you know some kind of military personnel or something, right? No one really had personal cars except for like the very cream of the crop top elites, right? They'd actually have some pretty fancy cars. Um, so most of the population would either walk or bicycle or take the bus or the subway to uh, get to you know get to wherever they were going. Water, uh, so water. Hot water was uh, sometimes unavailable, even during the winter, even in the diplomatic districts. So I assume it must have been much worse for the uh, for the locals. Now, some of these things did improve over the couple of years that I was there. Uh, I guess electricity is the only one that noticeably improved. You know, the role, uh, the the blackouts were less more less common, and um, seemed like a lot more people were actually able to use electricity even at night. Uh, compared to when I first got there. So I suppose that's it for the infrastructure in, in the city. Now, uh, outside the city, there's there's like varying conditions, but like some of the worst I've seen, which was most of the rest of North Korea, like the homes are like just literally like, you know, mud brick housing, brick sheds, if that makes sense. I heard some of them didn't even have like proper floors. It was just like, you know, padded dirt, right? With, like straw on top. Literally, like, you know, old school farm living conditions, I guess. Yeah, like for them, like electricity was rationed in the countryside in most places. The access to running water wasn't even available in many places. Like I personally saw people, like, you know, just like how, like, some people used to do, you know, back in the day in, in my country, like they would, you know, go to like water wells or water pipes and like they'll have to like, you know, fill up like, like big water jugs and carry it home for use, right? Like they didn't have running water at home. I mean, uh, Pyongyang, the capital city, and the rest of North Korea, very big, clear divide. Now, there were, like, some, like, bigger population centers, right, that had it a little bit better, but uh, those rural communities, man, it was, it was pretty bad. Did you ever feel almost, not guilty, but did you ever feel just shocked or bad almost every time you went out noticing these things? Um, I had a lot of, like, mis- appropriated or misallocated guilt. Uh, you know, I had a hard time, uh, you know, even though food was plentifully available to us at the embassy, right? Like I had a hard time like just like keeping it down because of, you know, all the all the people who are obviously suffering from hunger, like out in the countryside, especially. And there's been all these reports that say millions are starving and all that. Even if a fraction of that was the truth, even if it wasn't like three million people starving, even if it was just like one one million people starving, like that's still pretty bad, right? And I would just have this like weird sense of guilt, like you know, living at the embassy, nice and cozy, with access to heat and electricity and at least cold water, like all almost all the time. And yeah, it, it felt it was weird. Um, like obviously, it wasn't anything in, under my control, right? I couldn't fix it. I wasn't the one responsible for it, but I definitely felt this weird sense of guilt. Um, uh, and yeah, like it even led to an eating disorder. So yeah, I, I guess the short answer is yes. How did you manage to relocate or pacify that feeling? Well, uh, like I said earlier, there was a lot of, uh, you know, underage drinking, right, that uh, teenagers got, to, got up to. Um, also, I when I was in North Korea, that was the first time I uh, uh, did like drugs recreationally. 
something called Amidol, which is kind of like methadone here in the U.S., right? Uh, opioid uh, substitution, take it at uh, you know, large quantities, you do a high, right? And then, you know, video games, reading, uh, like binge-watching TV shows, just anything to try to take our minds off of it, I guess. What do you think was the most life-altering thing you might have seen while you were spending time in North Korea? You know, I, I grew up pretty spoiled, you know, like in a pretty cushy environment because of my family, right? The country I'm from, we're not a first-world country by any means, but, you know, I had the opportunity to travel. I had, uh, you know, I always had food, right? And, you know, we had, like, imported goods, so on and so forth, access to good education, right? Like, I, I was always aware that that was something that wasn't normal for, you know, every single human being, right? But especially seeing the countryside, you know, how things were in, in rural North Korea, it just, it was just, like, in my face. I, I became keenly aware of hunger problems, I mean, not just in North Korea, but, like, you know, around the world. And it really kind of, quote-unquote, brought me down to earth, so to speak, right? You know, just the privilege of having... Like not even three meals, but two meals a day, right? It was just this, this amazing thing, right? Like something I took for granted. Yeah, I guess just witnessing the hunger and just lack of, you know, like basic goods and services we have and we take for granted, put everything into perspective, I guess. You know, I also would like to add in here too, this is something that was on my mind as we were speaking earlier, is that you were talking about having the opportunity to see these problems right in front of your face and, you know, how you're aware of, how lucky your upbringing was and I certainly can agree with that because you know I was raised in the United States uh, I was lucky enough to say that I never had any issues growing up in terms of having these basic necessities really um, not at one not at one point throughout my entire life and you know I never have known the pain of hunger in that sense uh, well aside from fasting that's a completely different thing and that's that's a choice that you make which makes it completely different but I've never had a loss of water or housing ever at any point in my life, not even just with North Korea, but with the world at large, you can notice areas and parts of the globe that are not doing well by any way, shape, or form, or means. And the people that are inside of these countries, whether it be North Korea, I believe even Pakistan right now with the flooding, and many others, um, you know, you can notice huge, huge disparities of, of tragedy overall throughout the globe. It's not even having seen it with my own eyes and just seeing pictures. I, I do feel like I'm somewhat aware, but I do, I'm also 100% aware that seeing it in person must have, I think, rearranged the bricks to your reality, if that makes sense. Because yeah, absolutely. My perception changed forever. And, you know, to take this like, you know, like silver spoon spoiled kid and, you know, like have him like understand so much and just one visit outside of Pyongyang, you know, I, I feel like that's something that, you know, otherwise might have taken me years and years and years to realize, or maybe I might have spent the rest of my life not even realizing how privileged I was, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. It was, uh, it was definitely, you know, life, life altering, like world changing. The thing is, it's not even that the world actually changed, it's just my perception of it, you know, if that makes sense. How do you, um, you know, with this new perspective that you have, how do you make peace with that well um you know uh, i personally try to donate uh as much as i can to the local uh, food bank no here in the u.s uh like you know i mean this isn't to like say oh yeah the u.s is as bad as north korea i, I hate it when people do that but you know there's there are still hunger problems right it may not be as extreme as you know some parts of the world but it does exist and unfortunately there's nothing i can do personally for the people of north korea or really any other country right one person, but try to volunteer. I try to donate. Uh, that's you know, the extent of what I can do. And I know there's many different things I could have focused on, but I just personally really felt like you know, hunger was the one I chose, just because you know, seeing the people like who are scrawny and like you know, you look at the the, the average height in North Korea and the average height in South Korea. Like these were the same people at one point, right? You know, they come from the same root, you know, they're both Koreans, right? But the people have just, have just been so malnourished for two, three generations now to the point where they're just much small, smaller, right? And I don't mean just like in stature, but I mean, I don't mean just like, you know, in a general stature, but like, you know, their shoulder width, even their gait small. It, it's hard to describe, but 
you can definitely tell that there was there was like lingering effects that you know generational starvation has had on these people, right? And you know, remembering the people like begging for like not money or other things just just for food, and you know, including children, right? Reminded of how like you know, obviously malnourished they looked. Like that's just an imagery I can't get out of my head. So you know, whenever I'm like volunteering or donating to like food banks, that's usually what I keep in mind. Um, I personally, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be able to make like complete 100% peace with it, but I just try to, you know, do what I can for the local community, and you know, that's pretty much. I've come to accept that that's the best I can do. If that makes sense. And that's also another interesting thing, right? Your limitations of just being one person, because you you witness something that's so um, that just bends reality, your reality so much. But you're you're literally only one person, and you can only do so much. And it, you know, what you're doing seems to be absolutely perfect, which is just helping out your local community, which is something that um I try to, or especially throughout high school and up until now, I've tried to do with volunteering and whatnot to just help out your general area because your general area gives to you and you give back to it, if that makes sense. You know, so we talk so much about how this has changed, how you view everything. What do you make of people who visit North Korea and just come back and say, everything's fine? Oh, oh, oh God. So, yeah, that's uh, it's a special pet peeve of mine. Uh, I mean, so it's already, you know, we've established that Pyongyang and the rest of the country are very, very different, right? And um, not just, you know, that, but like those tourists, they, they are on a very, um, you know, some tailored tour, right? That's state approved. And on top of that, they're paying that regime to go there too, right? They're the people that created the whole mess in the first place, right? And that benefit from it, right? And then they will see all these wonderful things. And then especially the ones who are like online communists, they, they will... Uh, use those like tourist statements and you know pictures and videos as justification to say that hey there's actually no problems in North Korea and I can tell you with like 100% like no doubt in my mind uh, that these people are just quite literally falling for it they are they are they are taking in the propaganda and becoming one with it and then now propagating it right spreading it even further I would really urge these people to reconsider now you can say that parts of Pyongyang are cool you can say that parts of Pyongyang uh, are nice and clean whatever right you can say that parts of Pyongyang are whatever like whatever good adjective you want to use right but please don't use that one very small like highly supervised and censored tour to describe this whole country because there's a, a whole lot that's happening that the, the, the regime doesn't want people to know about don't don't be blind to the rest of the country i guess is what i would say to them if i can does their reaction uh, that you said in the sense of them falling for it does that make you angry or does it make you sad i mean both obviously i've you know kind of dealt with it so i'm less angry and more sad nowadays but initially especially like because i spent years trying to get myself in the in the you know to be able to talk about it without going down like a depression spiral right when I found out that these people exist and I watched some of their videos, you know, and they're claiming, oh yeah, there's no problems in North Korea. And uh, it just, it made me sick at the time because not only were they, I mean, not only were they just, you know, like kind of denying the existence of my personal suffering with it. They're also denying and just kind of like wiping from existence the literal starving millions and the generations of people who suffered, you know, not just like, you know, hunger and lack of water, but ultimately death and, can and cannibalism even at some point, right? When they say these things, right, maybe they don't really get the full implication, right? Because one person spreads it to another and to another and to another, and then the wrong people use that as uh, ammo, right, in discussions. And it's all it does really at the end of the day is to silence the, the, the suffering that all these millions of people now and in the past have suffered. Again, that made me really, really angry when I was younger. Uh, but now it just mostly makes me sad. But as you can tell right now, like if I actually spent some time talking about it, a little bit of that anger is reignited. No, I could definitely feel you getting, I would say, more passionate about the subject more than anything else, rightfully. You know, you, you had brought up this concept of uh, generational suffering um, just earlier. And, the you know, the Eastern 
philosopher Confucius often talked about the way, um, and the way was uh, keeping up traditions, having a good set of morals, and being an all-around uh, gentleman in order to live a good life. You know, I find that in these states that have absolute control over their citizens, tradition kind of tends to die, or religion kind of tends to be a little bit less prominent in the country. Would you say that about North Korea? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, technically, religion isn't banned there, but uh, that doesn't mean there is also a lot, lot of people practicing religion openly, right? Um, but uh, like the cult of personality that the leaders have and the, the leaders' backers have around them is, is insane. Like, for example, if you look up Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father, right, his like funeral procession, you have people throwing their coats in front of his, uh, like, you know, funeral wagon, like in the middle of winter, so that he won't get stuck in the ice. Insane stuff like that, right? Like it's come to the point where that in and of itself is a religion, right? And like whenever, you know, like the, the leaders, you know, like go out in public or do those tours or whatever, and they have like crowds of people like falling on their knees and like, you know, like, like kind of wailing, right? In, wow. but, but in happiness, just because they were able to see him, like, that's how I would expect like, you know, Western, like Western Christians to react if, you know, they saw Jesus, right? Like, that's the kind of vibe I get from, uh, from those, uh, from them. So... Yeah, the, the old traditions that I've seen in my home country and in China, Korea, Japan are almost non-existent and it's substituted by this, you know, weird, uh, I guess, deification, right, of uh, the, the, the leader and his family, right? I mean, they do have some old temples and stuff that they still preserve just for like, you know, like historical uh, relevancy or whatever, for, you know, for tourists. You know, to show them, hey, yeah, we have religious buildings, so how can we be against religion? But you don't see people openly actually exercising it there, right? Exercising religion there. Like, they don't actually worship in public. And uh, unfortunately, the people who are actually, like, devout, whether they're Buddhist or, you know, Christian or whatever other, you know, uh, tradition they want to, like, uphold, whatever other religion they want to practice, they have to do it kind of underground. Not, like, literally underground, but, you know, like, in hiding, right? And in fact, uh, we're not, for the life of me, remember his name, but there was even uh, a tourist who was arrested and held in North Korea for a short amount of time because he left a Bible in a, well, sort of like a club, like a leisure spot, right? It's arguable whether he did that on purpose or not, but, you know, like he was arrested and held there just for having left the Bible in public. So, you know, like there's um, obviously a lot of censorship like surrounding uh, religion, right? Like they claim that they have religious freedom, but that's just a claim, right? Just another piece of propaganda to make themselves look better. Uh, in, in practice, in effect, it's, it's like it's banned, right? Religious people are pro prosecuted uh, because, you know, in the past, some like, you know, dissidents were tied to religious groups. Just because of that, the rest of the other people who just maybe want to, you know, read the Bible or practice Buddhism are uh, have to suffer for it. Yeah, the traditions, really, like I myself coming from a very traditional family who really likes to uphold old traditions, like Eastern Asian, right? It's almost non-existent. Like I really didn't see much. You know, you, you were talking about people and how they would uh, go f crazy seeing these uh these leaders, you know, I, I, I had asked you earlier about if you ever got the chance to talk a lot with the general population of North Korea, and it seemed as though you hadn't, but maybe from your peers or from somebody else, were you ever able to gauge how these people generally felt about their situation? Uh, I actually got to be pretty close with a, a few of my tutors and a couple of like the restaurant staff people, right? Because now they're serving you drinks, and you're just sitting there, right? Sometimes just talk a little bit. It wasn't like, like a friendship, right? But, you know, I did get to pick their brain a little bit here and there. And over the course of, you know, a couple of years, that does come up to be a decent amount of information. So from what I could see, there were, uh, there were a few different patterns. You could tell some people really, truly, fervently believed in it, right? Like, like a fanatic, right? They really did believe in it. But then you could tell some people who were just, you know, like saying what they were supposed to say without the passion behind it, right? Whenever I ask about the leader or the party or what the government or their their quote unquote history with Kim Il Sung and you know so yeah like you got some people who who truly believe it some people who just say what they're supposed to say but you can you know kind of tell and they almost imply that they are not really that, that the heart's not really in it and then there were some people who straight up just said hey like I know what you're getting at I don't want to talk about this 
because as long as I'm not leaving, there's no point behind discussing it, right? Like these are the more jaded people, like who are a little bit more, who aren't as uh, open to the propaganda, right? But it's ultimately to them, it's like talking about it holds no purpose other than just getting them in trouble, right? Because like, like they said, if they can't just up and leave, you know, like what's the use in complaining about it, right? That was, uh, that, that's, that's about as much, that, that's about as close as I got to someone openly talking against the government or the leader or the party or the propaganda. But it seems like oh. a generally, um, for the most part, like a defeated or quieted attitude. Uh, yeah, the, 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 I would say that was the, uh, the largest number of them. Like, for example, like hospital nurses, doctors, uh, teachers, tutors, you know, staff, like generally they would just kind of like... They're, like they're like they're kind of going through the motions, and then every once in a while you'd have someone who's like just a fervent believer, and you could tell because they got this like insane passion, and they're tearing up as they talk about the uh, uh, the leader and the history and so on and so forth. But yeah, it, that was definitely not the majority. The majority were yeah, like you said, defeated and quiet. Do you think that the West accurately depicts how? North Korea goes about putting up this propaganda? Does the West have an accurate picture of them? Yeah, like, do you think that the West, particularly the United States and the Western Hemisphere of the world, do you think that they have a good, accurate picture, depiction of North Korea overall? Well, so what I would say is, yes, to a limited extent. So, you know, like, sometimes they'll have some people who exaggerated a bit too far, right? And some of these people are just regular people, and some of these people work in the media, right? And, you know, as a lot of people can agree, there is information manipulation on both sides. However, I will say that the depiction of North Korea as, you know, put out by the West, right, is probably a lot more accurate of the realities than it is, than like what's put out by North Korea. So just because there's uh, information manipulation on both sides doesn't mean that like, you know, oh yeah, like, you know, the U.S. must be absolutely full of BS. Like that, that's, that's not it. Like, if, let's say if it was like a sliding scale, I would put it at like 97%, like in favor of the U.S. image than compared to what North Korea puts out, because they put out this image of, of North Korea being like a paradise, right? And it absolutely isn't. I mean, for, for a select few in Pyongyang, it might be, yes, but not for the entire population. And um, moving on from that, though, like, because uh, I did live in um, you know, like South Korea and uh, Japan for some time, and they're, you know, their image of uh, North Korea is probably worse, I would say, compared to uh, compared to the West. Like they probably have the most exaggerations, I would say. Um, but that's also probably because maybe you know it hits closer to home to them. Maybe I don't know. And they have a lot more. Uh, they have a longer historical path. The whole thing, like Japan used to be, you know the the colonizers, and then, you know, they had people kidnapped pretty recently, I think even as recent as the 1990s, I believe. I would say the Western depiction is at least a little bit better than what South Korea and Japan puts out. Depiction that North Korea has of other countries and of the West. The propaganda kind of leans into the fact that they're different, at least nowadays. Like back in the day, they used to say, oh yeah, we're, we're, no, we're, we're not that different, like back in the Cold War days. Now, these days, they lean into the fact that they're unique, and they, they but then they, they, you know, they, they put a spin on it, saying like we're the last like hope for you know uh, having equality for the worker and stuff like that, saying like oh we're the last true communist country in the world. Everyone else has been corrupted by capitalists, you know, namely the U.S. Right? They basically will like cherry pick things from the outside world and show it to their people and say hey look, see this is why we're better and the others are worse. Like for example, like um, like they'll take. Uh, you know, like homosexuality being more like socially accepted, right, around the world. And they'll put a spin on it saying, oh, this is the capitalists uh, feminizing the world. How oh, they're going to take over everyone once everyone's like, you know, women. We've got, we've got to stay strong. We've, we've got to hold up these gender, gender roles, whatever, right? So on and so forth. And then to support that argument, they will like show like pictures of like South Korean and Japanese like boy band people. And yeah, like, you know, they look effeminate, but that's like, you know, that's, that's their personal choice to be that way, right? It's, it's not like someone is, like, injecting them with female hormones to make them that way, as the North Koreans would suggest. And then uh, they'll show, like, in you know, a warfare, like, you know, cost of warfare somewhere else. And they'll just you know, blame it on the U.S. usually, right? 
depending on which conflict you're looking at, they may be right on that, on a few of them. But um, still, like they will uh, uh, claim that you know um, that the American imperialists are like you know, to this day forcing proxy wars, and like even as recent as like the uh, the, the Ukraine Russia conflict, right? They Blame it all on the U.S. Like, you know, like, forget NATO, forget Russia. It's all just the U.S. playing both sides. And, you know, it kind of ties into some conspiracy theory theories you can, like, you know, find online. Not a fan of them, but some of, some of the, the propaganda they put out regarding foreign countries is really just like something you would read on, like, a, like, on, like, a conspiracy theory forum here in the U.S. Making the frogs gay, like, that kind of argument, basically. They're making the world gay. That's, you know, right. It's really interesting to me how they um, they cherry pick this information and the way that they spin it. It's 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 as though they they're just so good at just picking like the perfect pieces of information to just feed and let it work for them. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, because I assume like that, you know, the people that are doing this, you know, they, I assume they have a pretty good understanding of you know like of everything both the outside and the inside and the mentality of the people on the inside you know like you, you don't get to run a regime like this by being dumb right so they do have some very intelligent but very sick people working for them and speaking of this regime you know you're talking about the guards um and just how much control they have over where it is that you can go but um would you say that it it truly is that militarized generally speaking well yeah yeah so um the Conscription age for most males is about 14 or to get conscripted at a pretty young age. You know, by then uh, they consider compulsory education to be over, right? Unless you have like some kind of, you know, path into university or further studies or unless you have like a certain trade or something, you're basically a military grunt. And for 10 years, right? So, you know, 14 to 24 or 15 to 25, right? And women are also conscripted to a certain extent not like men where it's like almost universal right uh and their term is shorter and you know it's, it's a bit more fluid than uh how it is for the men obviously i'm not going to speak to their military power because you know what they have is outdated their training is not uh, for most of the military not that great but just in terms of like the personnel the number of people they have you know at any given time who's militarily trained and you know it's like an active service right uh is is just a staggering it's, it's a very large number i i don't know the exact number i'm sure one could look it up yeah it is highly militarized and they hold parades you know every once in a while where they will show off their military equipment you know mostly like you know soviet and the old Soviet stuff, I would say, but uh, they, they are very militaristic and they're very proud of it. In fact, one of their government principles, um, so th there's something called the Juche principle that, that their government follows, which is that they will, you know, uphold their independence without any foreign assistance, which quite ironic, you know, because you get a lot of foreign assistance, in, you know, food assistance usually a lot. But anyways, in order to do that, they have another principle called Songun, and it literally uh, stands for prioritizing the military, right? So above anything and everything, right? above infrastructure, social welfare, anything at all, they will 100% uh, uh, prioritize military advancement before they do anything else in order to maintain their independence, is what they say, right? Quite literally, the government's number one priority is the military. So it is highly militarized. However, would these conscripts actually put up a good fight with high morale? You know, that, that, that's disputable. And, you know, people who are a lot smarter than me have debated that topic back and forth for years, for decades, right? So, yeah, I can't have that final answer on it. But, yes, it is very, very militarized. And they're very proud of it. And I know you were part of, like, this diplomat community, if that makes sense. So you mm -hmm. had received uh, immunity uh, from... A lot of things, I believe. Uh, was there ever a point in time where that diplomatic immunity actually saved you from any type of issue? Um, so I, I, I don't really know because in the end, nothing really happened. But you know, every once in a while, the embassy would receive like a sternly worded letter saying, "Hey, like you know, you better watch some of these kids. You know, they're going in places where they shouldn't be." Right? In the right. Or like, hey, like they rode the subway at, you know, uh, and they went to like a station that they weren't allowed to go to. Or like, hey, they were like driving around at like weird hours of the night, you know, like 
please, you know, tell them not to do that and stuff like that. And, you know, the worst that could happen to us was to get deported, you know, uh, we, they can't just grab us and snatch us like they did with some people because of that immunity. So I assume things could have gotten a lot worse if I didn't have immunity on a number of different occasions where I just accidentally trespassed, right? Or, you know, in the case of the subway station where I shouldn't have gone to, like, you know, that definitely would have gotten me in big trouble, but you know, in the end, nothing really happened, just like a warning to the embassy, you know, so got yelled at by uh, my grandpa and that's about it. You know, I think that one thing that captured my attention quite a bit about North Korea was some of the stories of the prison camps. You know, did, did you ever get any type of experience or information regarding that? And if not, what's your general opinion on it? So the prison camps, you know, that, that's something that's very, very hard to, uh, you know, actually get accurate information on. Uh, not just, you know, for diplomatic community, but even for the North Koreans, because it turned out they don't really keep very good track of who's in and the numbers, whatever, right? Because if you kept very good track, that's, you know, just like asking for it to be used against them, right? So they don't even know the exact number of, you know, how many people are actually in the camp. So, you know, the, the stories of those people who escaped from the camps, right? That's like yes. pretty much like the only source of information we have. And my stance on that is uh, safe. You know, what they're saying is like, you know, like 10 out of 10, like as bad as it could be, right? Even if maybe a little bit of it is exaggerated, which it could be, right? Because again, there's information manipulation on both sides, right? Um, and they might, be, they might be incentivized to maybe, you know, like kind of dial up the, the dramatic factors. I personally think that that's okay because as long as it brings attention to the, uh, the, the crimes against humanity that's still happening to this day in North Korea, right? Then it's all right. And even if, let's say, it wasn't like 10 out of 10, uh, like, you know, cruelty, like, even if it was like a 9 or an 8 or a 7, that's still pretty bad, right? So, you know, I don't, I generally try not to, like, you know, argue against them or, like, you know, call them out or anything like that, because I do know that those, you know, stories, you know, a lot of, they get a lot of flack for, like, you know, like accusations of, like, embellishment or, like, uh, exaggeration, right? But again, in the end, if it brings attention to North Korea, but in a negative light, I'm okay with it. And even if they did, you know, exaggerate a little bit, again, I'm okay with it because, hey, like, that's literally all these people have now, right? Like, the story. And on top of that, since we can't get any accurate, you know, like third party, like like investigations, that's the only source of information we have to go off of. Why spend all the time and effort like disputing that information when well, we could you know, use that uh, effort somewhere else, right? I hope that uh, answers the question, I guess. And I started rambling halfway through. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's all great information. And, you know, so we, we talked... I think for the majority of this phone call about how kind of bad, generally speaking, North Korea is, and of course it is, but was there ever a moment that you were in North Korea that you were, like, happy or or amazed at something? Um, well, uh, there's the, uh, the, the Arirang Festival, you know, the huge the show that they put up. Now, obviously, I don't want to say, I don't want it to sound like, oh yeah, just because of this one thing, the rest of the country that's fine, right? Like, I don't want it to come across that way, but I've never seen anything like it before or after, right? Like, it's just insane. Just the number of people and the level of coordination and just the impeccable, like, perfect timing of, like, literally every single participant in it. It's breathtaking. Yeah, so that, that like, you know, you can't, can't deny the, uh, the artistic prowess of the people, so to speak. But there's so many hours of practice that goes into it and it's you know like kind of half voluntary right like you don't get to say you want to join it or not you're voluntold to join or not so you know if you're one of those performers performing there you know like if you're happy about it great but if you're not so open to doing it that could being coerced to like you know uh practice for hours and hours and hours a day on something that you don't even really want to participate in right that that from a certain perspective might seem like torture right <laughs> so um i don't want i don't want to i don't want what i said about it being breathtaking to be used as justification for you know that that for the uh, the latter half of what i said being okay you know you you seem as though you've come generally speaking out of this situation and you've understood a lot about yourself 
you've understood a lot about the experiences that you've seen and witnessed and you seem as though you've made I think it's, we were talking earlier about how you are still working on making peace with everything if that makes sense right yeah I mean like I said um, I don't know that I'll ever make peace with it completely uh, but I've come a long way you know years ago I wouldn't be able to talk about it without you know kind of withdrawing into my own head and just, you know, going down like into like a depressed, like a depressive spiral, right? And um, uh, got rid of my eating disorder, right? I can eat normally now. Uh, I don't have any kind of weird sense of like misallocated guilt anymore. But even then, I don't think I will 100% be okay. Like um, a couple of years ago, uh, I was at the supermarket shopping with my wife and uh, randomly heard some Koreans talking like in a different aisle and just weird like panicked state where I just kind of sat down and wasn't responding to my wife and I was just, like breathing really heavy and panicking and like breaking out in a sweat and then took like a good couple of minutes to like get me out of that state according to my wife flashbacks right but the last time was a couple of years ago so I assume I'm getting better and uh, I'm, I'm very glad that you're getting better you know as you've just lived this and experienced this um, what advice could you give to anybody who's listening on how to live uh, a good life with, with your perspective? Well, um, you know, like I appreciate the, the small things in life because, you know, some of those small things, there are millions of people born without it, right? Uh, you know, we touched on like hunger, right? Just the privilege of having, you know, a stable meal or two a day, right? Knowing that when you flip the light switch, it'll turn on and that you don't have rationed electricity, right? Knowing that, you know, with the, you know, what do you call it? The faucet, right? The faucet, yeah. the whole thing. The water is going to come out. And if you, you know, you can dictate whether it be hot or cold at will, right? Just really small things just you know, take for granted, you know, turning on your computer and connecting to the internet or having the internet in your pocket, you know, having like just public libraries that you can, you know, go to to pick out, like, you know, unbiased information, right? What, and whatever, like, side of the polit political spectrum you're on, you can read stuff from your own side or the other at will without anyone telling you you can't, right? Without going to, like, you know, prison for it, without getting questioned for it, right? You know, small things that, you know, I feel like a lot of people have for granted, you know, to be appreciated a little more. And on top of that, uh, uh, speaking from someone who was born into a position of privilege, right? Just to recognize it, to own up to it, and, you know, hopefully try to use that for good, right? For the betterment of others that may be more, you know, unfortunate than yourself, right? At the very least, man, just donate a can or two to the food bank, right? It doesn't cost that much, doesn't take up so much time, but it makes a big difference to, you know, a hungry family or a kid.